Yo, what is going on, guys? Welcome to the third episode of the Mike Bartner Show. We got some pretty interesting topics today to talk about. There's actually some news in the league today. We're going to go through the Rasmus Dahlin extension. Oh, I got that on replay. Turn that off. But uh, I got the chat up here on my other computer. It just went off. But we're going to talk about the Rasmus Dahlin extension, how he's looking for around eight years, $10.5 million. We're going to talk about the a more serious topic, we're going to talk about the 2018 Hockey Canada World Junior World Junior Team uh, investigation. There's a couple updates on that, a couple interesting things we got to get into that's going to have effects on the NHL as a whole. We're going to talk about team owners. What effect does a team owner have? Can it can a franchise with a bad owner still win the Stanley Cup? Can a franchise with a great owner still suck? I'm going to dive into that. And then finally, I'm going to go through my top 10 future potential dynasties in the NHL who is most likely to become a dynasty over the next over the next five to ten years whoever wins three cups in eight years roughly so without further ado that was kind of a rough start but without further ado let's get into the first topic first topic is regarding Darlene's potential mega deal we got something from Theo Theo says reports are coming out that Darlene is going to get an eight-year 10.5 million dollar contract am I crazy to think that's too high Miro makes 8.4, McCarr makes 9, and Fox and McAvoy both make 9.5. Uh, wait, just give me a second. Both make 9.5. He's a stud, but geez, he's only had one elite season. So when looking at Rasmus Dahlin, yes, I think that he is going to be worth this. This is a massive, massive deal that is going to reset the defensive market, but he's worth it. He is a 23-year-old stud that, in my opinion, should have been a Norris finalist last year. He posted 73 points, fantastic results both ways. He was one of the best defensemen in the entire league. Yes, it has not been smooth sailing for him, but he's had to deal with playing for some pretty bad teams over throughout his career to start basically every single year besides the years Jeff Skinner scored 40 points and this year obviously they have been like a 60 to 70 point team that's not ideal for a player's development and you look at him he is a defenseman he started out in the league so young and he showed so much promise and it's finally led to this at age 22 to have a Norris finalist season yes 10.5 is a lot but when you look at Rasmus Dahlin how important he was to this Buffalo Sabres team I don't think you can let him go. You look at relative expected goals percentage, basically what your on-ice expected goals percentage is minus your off-ice. Every other Buffalo defenseman was in the negatives this year, even Owen Power, who I think is going to be a very good top-pairing defenseman eventually. But Rasmus Dahlin came in at 12.9%. He carried this defense core this year. Absolutely carried them. And overall, in terms of the Sabres, on the whole, he also led the entire Sabres team in, in relative expected goals percentage, just barely ahead of Jeff Skinner, just barely ahead of Tage Thompson, ahead of Alex Tuck. So he is so valuable to that team because right now, until Owen Power is that legit top pairing guy, he's really the only stud that they have back there. He's going to play 25, maybe even 26 minutes next year. He is essential to that team. He is the franchise player. He is what started this most recent rebuild post-Jack Eichel era. I guess Jack Eichel kind of counts. But he is the franchise piece. I don't think Tage Thompson's the franchise piece. I don't think Owen Power, obviously, is the franchise piece. He is your young 23-year-old franchise defenseman. Tage Thompson's going to be like 26 in a couple weeks. He is what he is. He's going to be 45, 45, maybe 50 and 50. 
Rasmus Dahlin, you have a legit chance to get a Hall of Fame defenseman that can win multiple Norrises. So you lock him the hell up. And overall, in terms of the entire league, again, looking at that relative expected goals percentage, he was fourth in the entire league. I think Ottawa's defense was so bad that Shabbat was so much ahead of the other defensemen that they had this year besides Jake Sanderson that, that that's a little bit misleading. Shane Gothis Bear was playing in Arizona. They were utter garbage, so he played very well, but compared to the rest of his team, it wasn't that comparable. Adam Fox is fantastic, and Rasmus Dahlin came in at fourth. So again, I think right now he's safely a top 10 defenseman in the league. I don't think that's up for a debate. I think most people have him between probably the five and eight range with him only getting better over the next couple of years. So if he's going to be a top five defenseman, in the next year or two, you got to pay him like that. And going forward, that is going to be $10.5 million because although, as you mentioned, McCarr's only making $9 million four years left. Fox and McAvoy, I think, have six years left at $9.5 million. It's it's a different ball game. I, I've mentioned this 9,000 times on the show at this point, talking about the Sanderson, talking about the Matthews extension. The cap is going to go up. We're not in a flat cap system anymore. When those guys signed their deals, we were in a flat cap system. McCarr signed it in like 2021, so there was still two more years of a flat cap system. So going forward, as the salary cap starts to increase, you get Darlene at age 23. That deal is going to age very well as the salary cap increases. And again, McCarr, when he's a free agent in four years, is going to get like $12, $13 million. So then Rasmus Rasmus Darlene, I've, how do I mess the two up sometimes? But Rasmus Dahlin's $10.5 million is not going to look that bad. Probably, they lock him up. Quinn Hughes is going to get $10.5, $11 million when he's up in four years. So it's just the rising tide of the salary cap. You lock him in because if you don't lock him in this season, if you do not lock him in this season, and he has another Norris caliber year, he's a Norris finalist, that number is going to be 11, 11, 2, 5, maybe even 11, 5. Because you look at it, even at a potential $10.5 million deal. He's still technically not the highest paid defenseman in the entire league. That would be Eric Carlson, Drew Doughty. And obviously they're different scenarios because they signed their deals back in 2019 when the salary cap had not been affected yet. But Rasmus Dahlin getting this $10.5 million deal really would reset the market in terms of what teams are willing to pay a legit top 10, maybe top five defenseman in the future. I just realized I'm not recording. That's not good, but uh, uh, <laughs> that's really not good. But uh, in terms of what a franchise defenseman is worth going forward, I think in a year or two, franchise number one defenseman, it's going to be nine to $9.5 million. Top 10 defenseman, 10 to $11 million. And then once you get to that Norris winner, when McCarr's up in four years, we're going to be talking about 12 million. So when looking at Rasmus Dahlin, I think you just need to lock him up now. Maybe he does regress, but I think the regression for him at this point, what he's done, I know he's had some down years, but at this point, what he showed when he had a half-decent team around him this season, I think at worst you're looking at a 60-65 point number one, top 12 to 18 defensemen in the league at $10.5 million. That would definitely be extremely steep, but again, that wouldn't be as bad as, say, a Drew Doughty right now making $11 million. Eric Carlson obviously won the Norris, but... He hasn't really lived up to his contract. So I think there's really not that much downside in locking up Rasmus Dahlin because you're going to have him for most of his prime. I think you just get that locked up. You get that signed and sealed and just move the hell on. 
and you look at it as a Buffalo Sabres, they already have Tage Thompson at 7.14, Dylan Cousins at 7.1. So thankfully, because those deals were so good, although I do think Erasmus Dahlin, $10.5 million deal would be fair, they have some money to spend because they're going to get 3 to $4 million in surplus value off those guys over the next seven years. So money is really not a problem with the Buffalo Sabres. They're not like a Toronto Maple Leafs right now having to let Zach Hyman, Michael Bunting, like a bunch of players go. They are still in that stage where they can re-sign guys, even with Jeff Skinner making $9 million, even though he's it's kind of worth it last year. They they can shell out big money to their stars. Just lock them up. Let the salary cap rise. Kevin Adams knows what he's doing. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna doubt Kevin Adams. Dude's another stud. Dude has drafted fantastic, signed fantastic deals. But when you look at it, just pay Rasmus Dahlin. It's 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 really not that hard. But moving on, more of a serious topic right now. 2018 World Junior Scandal. This comes from Drew. Hey, Mike, saw you mention on your story that we might get some news on the 2018 World Junior Team uh, Hockey Canada story. I assume that's what he means. Do you know who, who it was? And for those who were involved, what do you think the punishment will be? So obviously, this is, I, I'm going to be reading off some notes so I don't mess this up here, but this is a very serious topic. For those that don't know, back in t- June of 2019, some of the players that were involved with the 2018 Team Canada gold medal team an incident happened that is unacceptable, disgusting. I'm, I'm going to give a short summary. I, I'm not going to go too graphic into details because I don't want to get kicked off YouTube. Something bad happening to my channel, but I'm going to look after. I'm going to. I have like a rough summary of what it was. Uh, there was some type of banquet at a golf event, I believe, where the 2018 gold medal team was invited. A woman said that she was separated from her friend group as she became more intoxicated and eventually left the bar and went to a hotel with John Doe, number one. John Doe is just what they use for a guy that's unnamed, that is a part of the lawsuit that they don't want to out yet because it's still a lawsuit. The investigation is still pending. But the plaintiff said that she showed evident signs of intoxication, including glassy-eyed, slurred speech, stumbling, and loss of balance. At the hotel, the two engaged in acts in John Doe number one's hotel room. According to the plaintiff, she was at times crying and attempted to leave the room, but was directed, manipulated, and intimidated into remaining in the room. The woman said that after this, John Doe one invited the remainder of the John Doe defendants. There was eight unnamed CHL players, five of those or four or five of those were on the 2018 World Junior Team. He invited those defendants into the room without the knowledge or consent of the plaintiff, and then the group of men did some acts without her consent. It's horrible. It's really horrible stuff. So that that's that's basically the incident of what happened. What happened following that is Hockey Canada settled a lawsuit with the woman in May, and it was $3.5 million, including $2 million for past and future compensatory uh, damages, $1 million for punitive damages, $300,000 for pain and suffering, $50,000 for mental health and stress. And yeah, so a really bad situation. But what made it even worse was Hockey Canada kind of tried to cover this up. They did not hold these people accountable. They just settled out of court and kind of brushed it under the rug. It was a total cover-up. They were 1,000% trying to just push this under the rug, not tarnish the overall brand of Hockey Canada, which, yeah, I mean, you don't want to ruin your brand over one team, but you should be able to take accountability and 
distance yourself from these people. Obviously not distance yourself, but you should be able to take accountability and say that this will never happen again. They didn't go down that route. They decided to brush it under the rug and it got exposed. It got exposed by Rick Westhead, one of the best investigative journalists working right now. He broke the Kyle Beach stuff. So it got exposed. And not only that, it also was exposed that Hockey Canada as a whole had multiple funds. Let me pull this up. Had multiple funds from Hockey Canada registration fees that they would funnel into funds in order to cover up these sexual uh, assault cases and Hockey Canada basically lied at the parliamentary committee this summer, last summer in terms of where the money was coming from in terms of them being able to settle out of this. So you had them try to cover up this story involving members of the World Junior teams, some of whom may or may not be in the NHL right now, being professional hockey players. They tried to cover that up. They didn't take accountability. They kind of brushed it under the rug. And then... Not only that, the money that they used to settle in these cases were from the average Joe that signs up through Hockey Canada. Some of their money went into this slush fund that, that ended up people would use to cover up sexual assault. It's just, it's just horrible mismanagement of funds. I understand you need to have your insurances as such a big organization, but the fact that they had this secret fund, they lied to Parliament, it, it, it's, it's really disgusting. And now looking at the potential implications on that going back to the question who it was. I'm not going to speculate on who it was. That's, that's just stupid. I'm going to lay out the facts on what the players from the team have said right now, what happened on social media that some people were talking about last night, but I'm not going to go into who it was and I'll kind of explain what I think the punishment might be in terms of who, who has said what these are just some of the players that were on the team in terms of set people that have said that they were not involved in the allegations uh, Jake Bean, KL Claw, I'm going to botch that name, Max Comtois, Dylan Dubé, Dante Fabro, Cal Foot, Yona Gajovic, Carter Hart, Brett Howden, Kel McCarr, Colton Point, Taylor Radish, Sam Steele, Tyler Stinbergen, Robert Thomas, and Connor Timmons. Players that have stated that they have fully cooperated with the investigation but declined to comment further. Boris Chattacut, I botched that bad, Drake Batherson, Michael McLeod. And then Alex Fermentin is the only player who has not made any comments up to date. So, yeah, obviously by not making comments, by uh, not denying, I'm not saying they're guilty. I'm just laying out what players have said regarding it. You can obviously lie and say you weren't a part of it, then it comes out that you later are. But that's just what we have in terms of the players right now. So when looking at the potential players, I'm really not going to speculate on what I think is going to happen, but I do think that we might have some news coming out regarding it. Considering the Hockey Canada Summit is this week, you look at it, Hockey Canada Summit is going to be talking about the future of Hockey Canada in terms of where they want to go. And the main topic regarding it is addressing the toxic issues in the sport. So although it's not a guarantee that something will come out from it, it's definitely a place where maybe you want to right some wrongs, address some things, and maybe go over what happened in 2018. And the other thing on social media, why people were speculating that something might happen, is a guy like Carter Hart, again, not saying he did anything, but he went private, and there's no references to fires. There's a bunch of other guys on social media that turned off their comments that probably were previously private, that people were speculating, went into private. I'm not going to read into that Instagram stuff. I think it is a little bit interesting that out of nowhere he becomes private, but that could be a trade. That could be anything. I'm not going to go too deep into it. But when looking at the players involved with this, 
going back to what I described in the story, I think whoever John Doe number one is will probably face prison time if if the investigation is proven to be true and what happened is true. If that person took advantage of an intoxicated woman and then brought in other men to perform acts, that's, that, that's disgusting. That is grotesque. That person should be out of the league. That person should never play hockey. That person should go to jail for years probably. That's absolutely disgusting. I think without a doubt. That, that, that's pretty common. I think you ask anybody, even someone that hates women, they would agree that that person should be in prison, out of the NHL, never playing the NHL again. That is a disgusting act. That is absolutely disgusting. As for the other five potential world junior players, I think the NHL would have to indefinitely suspend them. And then if they face uh, jail time, criminal lawsuits, then you just go off that. But there would definitely have to be an indefinite suspension. They would have to do something. If it comes out that one of these players, again, not going to name names, but if one of these players was involved in the 2018 incident, I don't think you can brush it under the rug and be like, oh, he wasn't John Doe number one. He just came into the room and perform those acts with the other people. That's that's such a lame excuse just because they maybe weren't at the start of it. That person should want that whoever was one of those people in that group, 1000% should be indefinitely suspended in the NHL. How long? I uh, I don't know, maybe for life. We'll see how the investigation goes, but definitely an indefinite suspension at least at least for one year minimum. Playing in the NHL, it's not a it's not a right that you're given. It's definitely a privilege in doing something like that, especially considering not that it would have made it better if it was outside of a hockey hockey environment, but it was at this event where the 2018 World Junior Team was being celebrated. So that was kind of a hockey event to happen. To have it happen there is simply unacceptable and just simply a horrible look for the sport, a sport that already has a ton of controversies coming out, Kyle Beach and all that stuff. So I think in terms of Gary Bettman, he needs to be swift and he needs to be aggressive on this. You cannot flub this up. This cannot be his Roger Roger Goudreau, Roger Goodell, Ray Rice, two-game suspension. If something happens, it just needs to be indefinite. I don't think anybody's going to be up in arms if their favorite player gets suspended for indefinitely because they were involved in this. This has been a massive scandal. But yeah. I didn't have fun talking about that. That's not a fun topic to talk about. But as terms of an update regarding the situation, uh, Katie Schrang, the Athletics investigative journalist reporter, said, according to London police, reached out this morning, the investigation into the world's 2018 World Junior Sexual Assault allegations remain active and ongoing. So, yeah, um, we don't have anything right now. Maybe there might be something uh, that happens at this hockey summit. But as of right now, it's it's up in the air, which is crazy because the season starts in like three weeks. Preseason starts in like th- two or two weeks. Actual season starts in three to four weeks. So I understand that they, they can't mess this up. They need to take their time with this investigation. But we're going on year two of this, and we still don't have answers. There's probably players playing in the NHL that were involved in this that are not being held accountable, that are making millions of dollars. So I'd definitely prefer that we get some news, some updates on this as soon as possible. But we're going to have to wait and see. Obviously, you got to let the justice system play out. I don't really know how the justice system works in Canada. I'm sure it's somewhat close to the United States. But let's move on. Let's, let's get to something more positive. That was not fun. Next up, owner's impact. We got this from uh, Jix Karn, 
Barah, I'm sorry if I bought your name. I'm horrible with names. You saw me read out those Canadian teams, or Canadian players. I'm a Canucks fan, and we hate our owner. Actually, let me just start from the top. Owner's impact. I'm a Canucks fan, and we hate our owner. He refuses to enter a rebuild, and he influences every GM to shut down even the slightest idea of rebuilding. Just wanted your thoughts and how this affects a team's ability to compete and succeed long-term. I think... An owner, while he's not on the ice, he's not coaching the team, is kind of essential for a franchise to succeed because you look at it in basically every aspect of business. The CEO, whoever's the president, CEO, runs the company at the tippy top. They are massive to an organization. Maybe not because they're doing the daily tax tasks that actually get everything done, but they're in charge of hiring everybody. They're in charge of mainly for me, setting the culture within the organization. And what, what does culture mean to me? Culture to me means setting a standard. It's setting what is acceptable. Whether your culture is Stanley Cup or bust or some owners just want to make some money off it, just want to have some revenue for a couple of years, squeeze the fans, get the TV money, the shared TV money, and then sell the team after 15 years. That's bad culture. That's bad ownership. Don't get me wrong. The NHL is a business. At the end of the day, these owners do want to make money. Like I understand that. But in terms of a great owner is someone who cares more about winning than money. And you look at a guy that probably cares the most about winning is Bill Foley of the Vegas Golden Knights. This guy came in right off the rip and he said cup in six years. In the, in the inaugural season, he said cup in six years, we're going to do whatever it takes. And they stacked up all these Future assets in the draft expansion lot, the expansion lot, expansion draft, draft expansion. But in the expansion draft, they were able to secure all these future assets. And what do they do with them? No, they didn't rebuild. They decided to trade Nick Suzuki, trade uh, Cody Glass. No, they kept Cody Glass. Trade Nick Suzuki, trade Eric Branstrom. They were trading everybody to win now. They went out. They got a Pacioretty. They went out. They got a Mark Stone. They signed uh, Alex Petrangelo. And as a result, they were able to be probably the most consistent, besides missing the playoffs for one year, the most consistent playoff team over the, besides let me, let me rephrase that. They, they were top three most consistent team in the entire NHL in their first six years, and he ends up winning the Stanley Cup in that six years. So he is the prime example of setting the standard, saying, basically, we need to be winning. We need Nothing is acceptable if we're not winning. I don't really care about profits. I don't really give a shit. We just need to win now. And you look at it, he did that. He achieved that. He set the standard within that building that... Loyalty in business is important, but winning and results are more important. That's why he fired Gerard Gallant after like a year and a half after making the Stanley Cup as an expansion team. He fired that head coach. That really set the tone. Also, trading Mark Andre Fleury after he won the guy, trading Mark Andre Fleury after he won the Vesna Trophy. That was insane. People thought he was insane for that. They ended up being. They actually didn't make the playoffs next year, but Mark Andre Fleury quickly fell off as a result after, and then they win the Stanley Cup two years later. So he doesn't care, which is ruthless. Don't get me wrong; it's it's very it's a very aggressive strategy. But the results are so hard to deny when he has two Western Conference Finals appearances, another Stanley Cup Finals appearance, and a Stanley Cup. That's pretty goddamn impressive. So when you look at an owner. On the flip side of that, a guy like Spano, who came in for the New York Islanders for one season, just wanted to make it about himself, be famous because he didn't have the money to actually buy the New York Islanders. That's where you end up being a disaster. I think in his one season in 1996, 
they had like a 35% points percentage. They were god-awful because it was an absolute gong show. And following that ownership, they sucked for the next eight years. So a bad owner can absolutely sink your franchise. And when looking at a guy that really only cares about profits, in my opinion, Alex Morello of the Arizona Coyotes kind of just 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 likes owning a team, but he likes to make money. They don't really make a ton of money in Arizona, but in terms of not trying to spend to win, using those LTR, LTIR moves. When you look at the Arizona Coyotes, do you know that Shea Weber is only owed $1 million in actual base salary the next three years, but has a $7.8 million cap hit? So like they owe him basically nothing, $3 million, but as a result, they can get to the cap floor, have a $6.5 million higher uh, cap hit than actual salary value. So an owner like that, just wants to keep his costs low, keep his salary cap low, get those older players that have front front loaded deals that aren't owed that much, like a Jacob Voracek, like a Brian Little, like a Shea Weber. That's an owner. We'll see once they actually become good if he spends money because they did go out and get Taylor Hall. I'm not sure if Morello was the guy back then, but it's gonna be very interesting to see if they continue to do that kind of like an Oakland Athletics level of ownership oakland athletics they just want the tv revenue share money they don't really give a shit about attendance they don't really care about putting a good product on the field they only have like a 30 30 to 40 million dollar salary cap or something but the shared tv revenue they get like 80 million dollars off that so they're still fat in the green they don't have to put out an actual good product in order to be profitable that that's the case with some of these rebuilding tanking teams in the nhl right now but you need to find yourself a Bill Foley is basically what I'm saying. Bill Foley is the ideal owner. Be aggressive because at the end of the day, the ownership sets the standard, sets the tone. And in terms of being a successful businessman, having a guy that has previous success at other businesses, hockey at the end of the day is a business. You need to hire the right people to do the on ice stuff. But a great executive is a great executive. So ownership, I would say, is pretty massive. And that's why you see some of these legacy owners not be as good. These Nepo babies like a Hal Steinbrenner in the NHL, I'm sure there's multiple examples of this. These guys that kind of get complacent grew up with their dads owning the team. They're not nearly as good. They're not nearly as good business people and they don't really know what they're doing. But yeah, ownership, vital to it, vitally important. But moving on, we have our next 10 to be a dynasty. So we're looking at this This list is going to be most likely to be the NHL's next dynasty. What do I mean by dynasty? I mean three Stanley Cups in the next eight seasons. It could have been previous Stanley Cups. For example, I'm counting the Lightning's two cups, but they only have another four years to get another cup. Uh, Avalanche, Knights, those all count blues. The Pittsburgh Penguins don't because 2016, 2024 would be nine years apart. It wouldn't be three cups in eight years. And I say three cups because I feel like a dynasty you need to be winning one more than once every three years, and especially being competitive within that span. Like the Pittsburgh Penguins haven't made it out of the first round since they won their Stanley Cup in 2017. It's not really a dynasty. But moving on, top 10 teams most likely to be a dynasty. What I looked at in terms of doing this is how young their core is, how good their core is, how good their prospect pool is, how tough their division is over the future. So let's get into it. Up first, the Minnesota Wild. The Minnesota Wild obviously already a playoff team around the 100-point team, and most of their key pieces are young, like Kaprizov, Ek, um, Addison, Gustafsson. Most of their key pieces are young, and they have a very good prospect pool. Uh, Yurov, Wallstead, Faber, Rossi, Height, Schrammel. So they not only have a 
pretty competitive, good young core right now. They also have a bunch of young guys coming up. I think they're going to need at least two of those prospects to become legit studs. Like Brock Faber is going to have to become a legit top pairing guy because I Boldy and Kaprizov should be good enough to be franchise players, but they're going to need some more stars because right now, at least offensively, they don't quite have what it takes. They're going to need a little bit more depth in those guys to pan out. But the Wild have a very bright future. If 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 they get a Nikita Kucherov out of Danila Yurov, Liam Ogren becomes a stud, they could go on a run. They could go on a very much a run. The Buffalo Sabres. Some people might have the Buffalo Sabres higher. I can definitely see where you're coming from. They do have such a sick young core, as well as them being signed long-term. I just need to see them make the playoffs first. You know what I'm saying? Like, this core still is unproven, although they were only a couple spots out. They're going to be very much in the mix over the next couple years. I just like some of the Eastern Conference teams maybe a little bit more, but the Buffalo Sabres are loaded. Next up, I got the Carolina Hurricanes. Still a relatively young team and a team that consistently puts up over 110 points a year. I'm not sure they have the offensive firepower to end up winning the Stanley Cup, but you look at it, Svechnikov, Aho, Natchez, Kakaniemi, Jarvis, they're all going to be there for the next decade, most likely, and they're going to have Rod Brindamore as the coach, assuming they pay him. So they're just going to be in the mix consistently. Could they win two, maybe three Stanley Cups? If they put it together, it's definitely possible. I think for them, it's going to be essential. That Seth Jarvis becomes a legit top pair or top line 65 to 70 point guy. So then they have Natchez. They have like four elite forwards. And also Alexander Nikishin, the Russian defenseman prospect. He's gonna have to replace Brett Burns when once Brett Burns does start to regress, which is gonna happen in like at least two years because he's 38 years old. So his development is gonna be massive. He just tore up the KHL. But Alexander Nikishin needs to step up immediately and become an elite offensive defenseman for them, and they should be cooking. Dallas Stars, and again, kind of similar to the Carolina Hurricanes, not as consistently good, but this year 108-point team. They got hints signed for seven or eight years at $8.4 million. Heiskanen has six years left. Uh, Jason Robertson, three years left at 7.4. Their core pieces, those three, as well as Jake Ottinger, are going to be on the team and probably going to be on pretty team-friendly deals for the next decade. So they're probably my pick to make it out of the West next year. Could I see them go on an absolute tear? It's definitely possible. This one might be controversial. I have the Oilers. Connor McDavid and Leon Seidel, as long as they're on the team, you can put the pieces around them and they're going to be a highly competitive team and they're always going to most likely have the two best, definitely the best player, probably the two best players in the entire league. And Let me rephrase that. Whenever you have McDavid and Dreisaitl, you're most certainly going to have the best player on the ice, probably the two best players on the ice, unless unless you play Colorado and then you got like a Kel McCarr or Nathan McKinnon, but you're probably going to by far have the two best players on the ice. So as long as they're in Edmonton, I could see them ripping off three Stanley Cups in five years starting next year. It's going to be tough. They're going to have to put the right pieces around. Stuart Skinner is going to have to develop, but it's looking very bright for them. Vegas Golden Knights. This one's a little bit interesting. They have the one Stanley Cup already, so they just need to win two in the next seven years. I just have question marks about their future. I look at a guy looking up right there. Marcia So. <clears throat> Marcheseau is already 32, Petrangelo's 33, uh, Stone's 31, Carlson's 30, Stevenson's 28. Eichel and Theodore are like, they're two young guys, and even they are 26 and 27. So like, it's like, if they don't get another Stanley Cup, they, they basically have to win the next two Stanley Cups to become that dynasty in the next four years, because most likely after that, 
they're going to have to enter some type of retool, rebuild. I don't know. Again, Bill Foley's another stud like I was talking about before. Maybe he'll somehow make it work. But as of right now, I don't really love it. Next up, I got the Chicago Blackhawks. The Blackhawks, it's going to sound absurd because they're still a really bad team. But once you have that generational talent in a Connor Bedard, if you can just build it somewhat right, you have a decent chance at winning multiple Stanley Cups. You know what I'm saying? And I think with Kyle Davidson, the other guy pictured there, he knows that they can't rush into try to be competitive right now. They still have another two to three years of probably stinking getting high-end prospects. I like what they're building right now with Korchinski and Reichel. They have a bunch of other first-round picks from like the Lightning and a couple other teams, the Maple Leafs, I think. But the future is looking very bright with Connor Bedard. As long as they can get him... Korchinski develops into a number one defenseman. They get another stud center, a winger next year in the draft. It's going to be looking very good for the Blackhawks. I'm willing to bet Connor Bedard wins at least one Stanley Cup in, in Chicago. And we already saw them become a dynasty with uh, Patrick Kane being the centerpiece. If they can find the Duncan Keith, find the Jonathan Tays, find the other pieces, it's perfectly possible. Moving on to number three, we got the, we got the New Jersey Devils. So I think this is a pretty... Easy pick for me. Most of their core is young, below the age of 27, and locked up long-term. These two, obviously, are on some of the best deals in all of hockey. So over the next five years, I think the expectation is definitely one Stanley Cup, maybe even two. Can can they get to that third Stanley Cup in order to become a dynasty? Again, I don't think these teams are likely to become a dynasty. There's like a dynasty every 15 years. But it's definitely possible for the Devils, even though they haven't won one yet, out of the teams that don't have a cup yet in the last five years or whatever, they're definitely the most likely to potentially become a dynasty given their age, given their core. As long as Akira Schmid, Luke Hughes, and Simone Nemich pan out, they're not going to have a single weak spot on their team. Even when Dougie Hamilton starts to age, some of their other guys start to get old. They're going to be extremely elite and in their prime for the next eight years. They can win three Stanley Cups. It's definitely possible. Number two, Colorado Avalanche, they have taken a hit. If, if you asked me this last year, I'd say like, yeah, they're winning two Stanley Cups. Three is probably like a 40% chance. But since then, I think the odds have kind of gone down of them potentially winning three Stanley Cups. They already have that one, so they need to be number two on this list. And they are pretty young. As long as they have these three guys, they're going to be a top four team in the West for the next five years while they're in their prime. It's definitely going to be harder without Gabriel Landeskog now that he is potentially done forever they're going to get ltir relief but they're not as scary as they used to be they, they severely lack depth now that the nathan mckinnon extension has kicked in miko rantanen is going to need extension in a year or two so i think they still are the cream of the crop in the color in the west and because they've done it and they're also pretty young but in terms of being number one anymore no i wouldn't have them as like the most likely next dynasty i think it's probably 35 to 40% chance they get a second one. Because they're going to be a 105-point team the next four years. It's definitely possible. But at number one, number one's pretty obvious. I don't think this should be that much of a debate. Even though I think their best days are behind them, it's, a, it's Tampa Bay Lightning. They already have two in two out of the last four, two in the last four years. So they just need to win one more over the next four years. I don't think they're going to do it. I think their prime is definitely past them. But as long as... Kucherov's still elite. Stamkos still gives you 80 to 90 points. Points, a top 10 center. Hedman's half decent. Sergachev's now another stud. As long as their core pieces don't fall off a cliff, they're going to be a safe playoff team. They're going to be able to go on a deep playoff run. So with Vasilevsky and Net, is it possible that he just goes 
absolutely berserk and ends up winning another Stanley Cup. It's definitely possible. So yeah, just given the fact that they already have the two Stanley Cups in four years, they just need to win one more to become that dynasty in my books. I think the Tampa Bay Lightning are pretty clearly the number one pick. But let me know in the comments, what do you think about this? This, oh wait, let me go to the full one. Whoops. But let me know in the comments. What do you think about this? This better be posted on Instagram. Most likely be the next NHL dynasty. Lightning, Avalanche, Devils, Blackhawks, Knights, Oilers, Stars, Hurricanes, Sabres, Wild. That's the show. We went like 35 minutes, pretty solid. Going forward, I expect to have guests and interviews. It's not just me talking. I 1,000% agree. I don't think the show has been... Maybe not as good. I definitely got to get better at this, but like I think we need to interject some type of guests or interviews going forward. So going forward, hopefully starting next week, I should have interviews. I think we're going to do like one solo show maybe. Like out of every three shows, one solo, one guest, just me running down topics, and then one half solo going over one or two topics, and then a 20-minute guest interview. I think that's going to be solid. I'm going to ask you guys on my Instagram. But yeah, let me know in the comments, what do you think? Feel free to DM me your, your thoughts on the show. How can we improve it? But yeah, really appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day. I got my fantasy hockey draft tonight. I'm ready to fucking go.